Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground. Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Chapter 3 of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 There is music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched his guests diving from the tower of his raft, or taking the sun on the hot sand of his beach while his two motorboats slit the waters of the sound, drawing aquaplanes over cataracts of foam. On weekends, his Rolls-Royce became an omnibus, bearing parties to and from the city between nine in the morning and long past midnight while his station wagon scampered like a brisk yellow bug to meet all trains. And on Mondays, eight servants, including an extra gardener, toiled all day with mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears, repairing the ravages of the night before. Every Friday, five crates of oranges and lemons arrived from a fruiterer in New York. Every Monday, these same oranges and lemons left his back door in a pyramid of pulpless halves. There was a machine in the kitchen which could extract the juice of two hundred oranges in half an hour if a little button was pressed two hundred times by a butler's thumb. At least once a fortnight a corps of caterers came down with several hundred feet of canvas and enough colored lights to make a Christmas tree of Gatsby's enormous garden. On buffet tables garnished with glistening hors d'oeuvre, spiced baked hams crowded against salads of harlequin designs, and pastry pigs and turkeys bewitched to a dark gold. In the main hall a bar with a real brass rail was set up, and stocked with gins and liquors, and with cordials so long forgotten that most of his female guests were too young to know one from another. By seven o'clock the orchestra has arrived, no thin five-piece affair, but a whole pitful of oboes and trombones and saxophones and violas and cornets and piccolos and low and high drums. The last swimmers have come in from the beach now and are dressing upstairs. The cars from New York are parked five deep in the drive, and already the halls and salons and verandas are gaudy with primary colors and hair bobbed in strange new ways, and shawls beyond the dreams of Castile. The bar is in full swing, and floating rounds of cocktails permeate the garden outside, until the air is alive with chatter and laughter, and casual innuendo and introductions forgotten on the spot, and enthusiastic meetings between women who never knew each other's names. The lights grow brighter as the earth lurches away from the sun, and now the orchestra is playing yellow cocktail music, and the opera of voices pitches a key higher. 
laughter is easier minute by minute spilled with prodigality tipped out at a cheerful word the groups change more swiftly swell with new arrivals dissolve and form in the same breath already there are wanderers confident girls who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable become for a sharp joyous moment the centre of a group and then excited with triumph glide on through the sea-change of faces and voices and colour under the constantly changing light suddenly one of these gypsies in trembling opal seizes a cocktail out of the air dumps it down for courage and moving her hands like frisco dances out alone on the canvas platform a momentary hush the orchestra leader varies his rhythm obligingly for her and there is a burst of chatter as the erroneous news goes around that she is gilda gray's understudy from the follies the party has begun i believe that on the first night i went to gatsby's house i was one of the few guests who had actually been invited people were not invited they went there they got into automobiles which bore them out to long island and somehow they ended up at gatsby's door once there they were introduced by somebody who knew gatsby and after that they conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated with an amusement park sometimes they came and went without having met gatsby at all came for the party with a simplicity of heart that was its own ticket of admission i had been actually invited a chauffeur in uniform of robin's egg blue crossed my lawn early that saturday morning with a surprisingly formal note from his employer the honor would be entirely gatsby's it said if i would attend his little party that night he had seen me several times and had intended to call on me long before but a peculiar combination of circumstances had prevented it signed j gadsby in a majestic hand dressed up in white flannels i went over to his lawn a little after seven and wandered around rather ill at ease among swirls and eddies of people i didn't know though here and there was a face i had noticed on the commuting train i was immediately struck by the number of young englishmen dotted about all well dressed all looking a little hungry and all talking in low earnest voices to solid and prosperous americans i was sure that they were selling something bonds or insurance or automobiles they were at least agonizingly aware of the easy money in the vicinity and convinced that it was theirs for a few words in the right key as soon as i arrived i made an attempt to find my host but the two or three people of whom i asked his whereabouts stared at me in such an amazed way and denied so vehemently any knowledge of his movements that i slunk off in the direction of the cocktail table the only place in the garden where a single man could linger without looking purposeless and alone i was on my way to get roaring drunk from sheer embarrassment when jordan baker came out of the house and stood at the head of the marble steps leaning a little backward and looking with contemptuous interest down into the garden welcome or not i found it necessary to attach myself to someone before i should begin to address cordial remarks to the passer-by hello i roared advancing toward her my voice seemed unnaturally loud across the garden i thought you might be here she responded absently as i came up i remembered you lived next door to she held my hand impersonally as a promise that she'd take care of me in a minute and gave ear to two girls in twin yellow dresses who stopped at the foot of the steps hello they cried together sorry you didn't win 
That was for the golf tournament. She had lost in the finals the week before. "'You don't know who we are,' said one of the girls in yellow. "'But we met you here about a month ago.' "'You've dyed your hair since then,' remarked Jordan. And I started, but the girls had moved casually on, and her remark was addressed to the premature moon, produced like the supper, no doubt, out of a caterer's basket. With Jordan's slender golden arm resting on mine, we descended the steps and sauntered about the garden. A tray of cocktails floated at us through the twilight, and we sat down at a table with the two girls in yellow and three men, each one introduced to us as Mr. Mumble. "'Do you come to these parties often?' inquired Jordan of the girl beside her. "'The last one was the one I met you at,' answered the girl in an alert, confident voice. She turned to her companion. "'Wasn't it for you, Lucille?' It was for Lucille, too. "'I like to come,' Lucille said. "'I never care what I do so long as I always have a good time. When I was here last I tore my gown on a chair, and he asked me my name and address.' Inside of a week I got a package from Croriers with a new evening gown in it. "'Did you keep it?' asked Jordan. "'Sure I did. I was going to wear it tonight, but it was too big in the bust and had to be altered. It was gas blue with lavender beads, two hundred and sixty-five dollars.' "'There's something funny about a fellow to do a thing like that,' said the other girl eagerly. "'He doesn't want any trouble with anybody.' "'Who doesn't?' I inquired. Gatsby, somebody told me. The two girls and Jordan leaned together confidentially. Somebody told me they thought he killed a man once. A thrill passed over all of us. The three Mr. Mumbles bent forward and listened eagerly. I don't think it's so much that, argued Lucille skeptically. It's more that he was a German spy during the war. One of the men nodded in confirmation. "'I heard that from a man who knew all about him, grew up with him in Germany,' he assured us positively. "'Oh, no,' said the first girl. "'It couldn't be that, because he was in the American army during the war.' As our credulity switched back to her, she leaned forward with enthusiasm. "'You look at him sometimes when he thinks nobody's looking at him. I'll bet he killed a man.' She narrowed her eyes and shivered. Lucille shivered. We all turned and looked around for Gatsby. It was testimony to the romantic speculation he inspired, that there were whispers about him from those who had found little that it was necessary to whisper about in this world. The first supper—there would be another one after midnight—was now being served, and Jordan invited me to join her own party, who were spread around the table on the other side of the garden. There were three married couples in Jordan's escort, a persistent undergraduate given to violent innuendo, and obviously under the impression that sooner or later Jordan was going to yield him up her person to a greater or lesser degree. Instead of rambling, this party had preserved a dignified homogeneity and assumed to itself the function of representing the staid nobility of the countryside. East Egg condescending to West Egg and carefully on guard against its spectroscopic gaiety. "'Let's get out,' whispered Jordan after a somehow wasteful and inappropriate half-hour. "'This is much too polite for me.' We got up, and she explained that we were going to find the host. I had never met him, she said, and it was making me uneasy. The undergraduate nodded in a cynical, melancholy way. The bar where we glanced first was crowded, but Gatsby was not there. 
She couldn't find him from the top of the steps, and he wasn't on the veranda. On a chance, we tried an important-looking door and walked into a high Gothic library, paneled with carved English oak, and probably transported complete from some ruin overseas. A stout middle-aged man with enormous allied spectacles was sitting somewhat drunk on the edge of a great table, staring with uneasy concentration at the shelves of books. As we entered, he wheeled excitedly around and examined Jordan from head to foot. "'What do you think?' he demanded impetuously. "'About what?' He waved his hand toward the bookshelves. "'About that? As a matter of fact, you needn't bother to ascertain. I ascertained. They're real.' "'The books?' He nodded. "'Absolutely real. Have pages and everything.' I thought they'd be a nice, durable cardboard. Matter of fact, they're absolutely real. Pages and... Here, let me show you. Taking our skepticism for granted, he rushed to the bookcases and returned with volume one of the Stoddard Lectures. See? he cried triumphantly. It's a bona fide piece of printed matter. It fooled me. This fellow's a regular Belasco. It's a triumph. What thoroughness! What realism! Knew when to stop, too. Didn't cut the pages. But what do you want? What do you expect? He snatched the book from me and replaced it hastily on its shelf, muttering that if one brick was removed, the whole library was liable to collapse. Who brought you? he demanded. Or did you just come? I was brought. Most people were brought. Jordan looked at him alertly, cheerfully, without answering. "'I was brought by a woman named Roosevelt,' he continued. "'Mrs. Claude Roosevelt. Do you know her? I met her somewhere last night. I've been drunk for about a week now, and I thought it might sober me up to sit in a library.' "'Has it?' "'A little bit, I think. I can't tell yet. I've only been here an hour.' "'Did I tell you about the books they're real they're you told us we shook hands with him gravely and went back outdoors there was dancing now on the canvas in the garden old men pushing young girls backwards into eternal graceless circles superior couples holding each other tortuously fashionably and keeping in the corners and a great number of single girls dancing individually or relieving the orchestra for a moment of the burden of the banjo or the traps by midnight the hilarity had increased a celebrated tenor had sung in italian and a notorious contralto had sung in jazz and between the numbers people were doing stunts all over the garden while happy vacuous bursts of laughter rose toward the summer sky a pair of stage twins who turned out to be the girls in yellow did a baby act in costume and champagne was served in glasses bigger than finger bowls the moon had risen higher, and floating in the sound was a triangle of silver scales, trembling a little to the stiff, tinny drops of the banjos on the lawn. I was still with Jordan Baker. We were sitting at a table with a man of about my age, and a rowdy little girl who gave way upon the slightest provocation to uncontrollable laughter. I was enjoying myself now. I had taken two finger-bowls of champagne, and the scene had changed before my eyes into something significant, elemental, and profound. At a lull in the entertainment, the man looked at me and smiled. 
your face is familiar he said politely were you in the first division during the war why yes i was in the twenty-eighth infantry i was in the sixteenth until june nineteen eighteen i knew i'd seen you somewhere before we talked for a moment about some wet gray little villages in france evidently he lived in the vicinity for he told me that he had just bought a hydroplane and was going to try it out in the morning want to go with me old sport just near the shore along the sound what time any time that suits you best it was on the tip of my tongue to ask his name when jordan looked around and smiled having a gay time now she inquired much better i turned again to my new acquaintance this is an unusual party for me i haven't even seen the host i live over there i waved my hand at the invisible hedge in the distance and this man gatsby sent over his chauffeur with an invitation for a moment he looked at me as if he failed to understand i'm gatsby he said suddenly what i exclaimed oh i beg your pardon i thought you knew old sport i'm afraid i'm not a very good host he smiled understandingly much more than understandingly it was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life it faced or seemed to face the whole eternal world for an instant and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor it understood you just so far as you wanted to be understood believed in you as you would like to be believed in yourself and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you that at your best you hoped to convey precisely at that point it vanished and i was looking at an elegant young roughneck a year or two over thirty whose elaborate formality of speech just missed being absurd some time before he introduced himself i got a strong impression that he was picking his words with care almost at the moment when mr gatsby identified himself a butler hurried toward him with the information that chicago was calling him on the wire he excused himself with a small bow and included each of us in turn if you want anything just ask for it old sport he urged me excuse me i will rejoin you later when he was gone i turned immediately to jordan constrained to assure her of my surprise i had expected that mr gatsby would be a florid and corpulent person in his middle years who is he i demanded do you know he's just a man named gatsby where's he from i mean and what does he do now you're started on the subject she answered with a wan smile well he told me once he was an oxford man a dim background started to take shape behind me but at her next remark it faded away however i don't believe it why not i don't know she insisted i just don't think he went there something in her tone reminded me of the other girls i think he killed a man and had the effect of stimulating my curiosity i would have accepted without question the information that gatsby sprang from the swamps of louisiana or from the lower east side of new york that was comprehensible but young men didn't at least in my provincial inexperience i believed they didn't drift coolly out of nowhere and buy a place on long island sound anyhow he gives large parties said jordan changing the subject with an urban distaste for the concrete and i like large parties they're so intimate at small parties there isn't any privacy 
there was the boom of a bass drum and the voice of the orchestra leader rang out suddenly above the echolalia of the garden ladies and gentlemen he cried at the request of mr gatsby we are going to play for you mr vladimir tostoff's latest work which attracted so much attention at carnegie hall last may if you read the papers you know there was a big sensation he smiled with jovial condescension and added some sensation whereupon everybody laughed the piece is known he concluded lustily as vladimir tostoff's jazz history of the world the nature of mr tostoff's composition eluded me because just as it began my eyes fell on gatsby standing alone on the marble steps and looking from one group to another with approving eyes his tanned skin was drawn attractively tight on his face and his short hair looked as though it were trimmed every day i could see nothing sinister about him i wondered if the fact that he was not drinking helped to set him off from his guests for it seemed to me that he grew more correct as the fraternal hilarity increased when the jazz history of the world was over girls were putting their hands on men's shoulders in a puppyish convivial way girls were swooning backwards playfully into men's arms even into groups knowing that someone would arrest their falls but no one swooned backwards on gatsby and no french bob touched gatsby's shoulder and no singing quartets were formed with gatsby's head for the link i beg your pardon gatsby's butler was suddenly standing beside us miss baker he inquired i beg your pardon but mr gatsby would like to speak to you alone with me she exclaimed in surprise yes madame she got up slowly and raised her eyebrows at me in astonishment and followed the butler toward the house i noticed that she wore her evening dress all her dresses like sports clothes there was a jauntiness about her movements as if she had first learned to walk upon golf courses on clean crisp mornings i was alone and it was almost two for some time confused and intriguing sounds had issued from a long many-windowed room which overhung the terrace eluding jordan's undergraduate who was now engaged in an obstetrical conversation with two chorus girls and who implored me to join him i went inside the large room was full of people one of the girls in yellow was playing the piano and beside her stood a tall red-haired young lady from a famous chorus engaged in song she had drunk a quantity of champagne and during the course of her song she had decided ineptly that everything was very very sad she was not only singing she was weeping too whenever there was a pause in the song she filled it with gasping broken sobs and then took up the lyric again in a quavering soprano the tears coursed down her cheeks not freely however for when they came into contact with her heavily beaded eyelashes they assumed an inky color and pursued the rest of their way in slow black rivulets a humorous suggestion was made that she sing the notes on her face whereupon she threw up her hands sank into a chair and went off into a deep vinous sleep she had a fight with the man who says he's her husband explained a girl at my elbow i looked around most of the remaining women were now having fights with men said to be their husbands even jordan's party the quartet from east egg were rent asunder by dissension one of the men was talking with curious intensity to a young actress 
and his wife, after attempting to laugh at the situation in a dignified and indifferent way, broke down entirely and resorted to flank attacks. At intervals she appeared suddenly at his side like an angry diamond and hissed, "'You promised!' into his ear. The reluctance to go home was not confined to wayward men. The hall was at present occupied by two deplorably sober men and their highly indignant wives. The wives were sympathizing with each other in slightly raised voices. "'Whenever he sees I'm having a good time, he wants to go home.' never heard of anything so selfish in my life we're always the first ones to leave so we are well we're almost one of the last tonight said one of the men sheepishly the orchestra left half an hour ago in spite of the wives agreement that such malevolence was beyond credibility the dispute ended in a short struggle and both wives were lifted kicking into the night as I waited for my hat in the hall, the door of the library opened and Jordan Baker and Gatsby came out together. He was saying some last word to her, but the eagerness in his manner tightened abruptly into formality as several people approached him to say goodbye. Jordan's party were calling impatiently to her from the porch, but she lingered for a moment to shake hands. "'I've just learned the most amazing thing,' she whispered. "'How long were we in there?' "'Why, about an hour.' It was simply amazing, she repeated abstractedly, but I swore I wouldn't tell it, and here I am tantalizing you. She yawned gracefully in my face. Please come and see me. Phone book under the name of Mrs. Sigourney Howard, my aunt. She was hurrying off as she talked. Her brown hand waved a jaunty salute as she melted into her party at the door. Rather ashamed that on my first appearance I had stayed so late, I enjoyed the last of Gatsby's guests who were clustered around him. I wanted to explain that I had hunted for him early in the evening and to apologize for not having known him in the garden. "'Don't mention it,' he enjoined me eagerly. "'Don't give it another thought, old sport.' The familiar expression held no more familiarity than the hand which reassuringly brushed my shoulder. "'And don't forget, we're going up in the hydroplane tomorrow morning at nine o'clock.' Then the butler, behind his shoulder— "'Philadelphia wants you on the phone, sir.' "'All right, in a minute. Tell them I'll be right there. "'Good night.' "'Good night.' "'Good night,' he smiled, and suddenly there seemed to be a pleasant significance in having been among the last to go, as if he had desired it all the time. "'Good night, old sport. Good night.' But as I walked down the steps I saw that the evening was not quite over. Fifty feet from the door a dozen headlights illuminated a bizarre and tumultuous scene. In the ditch beside the road, right side up but violently shorn of one wheel, rested a new coupe which had left Gatsby's drive not two minutes before. The sharp jut of the wall accounted for the detachment of the wheel, which was now getting considerable attention from half a dozen curious chauffeurs. However, as they left their cars blocking the road, a harsh discordant din from those in the rear had been audible for some time, and added to the already violent confusion of the scene. A man in a long duster had dismounted from the wreck, and now stood in the middle of the road, looking from the car to the tire, and from the tire to the observers, in a pleasant, puzzled way. "'See,' he explained, "'it went in the ditch!' 
the fact was infinitely astonishing to him and i recognized first the unusual quality of wonder and then the man it was the late patron of gatsby's library how'd it happen he shrugged his shoulders i know nothing whatever about mechanics he said decisively but how did it happen did you run into the wall don't ask me said owl eyes washing his hands of the whole matter i know very little about driving next to nothing it happened that's all i know well if you're a poor driver you oughtn't to be driving at night but i wasn't even trying he explained indignantly i wasn't even trying an odd hush fell upon the bystanders do you want to commit suicide you're lucky it was just a wheel a bad driver not even trying you don't understand explained the criminal i wasn't driving there's another man in the car the shock that followed this declaration found voice in a sustained ah as the door of the coupe swung slowly open the crowd it was now a crowd stepped back involuntarily and when the door had opened wide there was a ghostly pause then very gradually part by part a pale dangling individual stepped out of the wreck pawed tentatively at the ground with a large uncertain dancing shoe blinded by the glare of the headlights and confused by the incessant groaning of the horns the apparition stood swaying for a moment before he perceived the man in the duster was matter he inquired calmly did we run out of gas look half a dozen fingers pointed at the amputated wheel he stared at it for a moment and then looked upward as though he suspected that it had dropped from the sky it came off someone explained he nodded at first i didn't notice we'd stopped a pause then taking a long breath and straightening his shoulders he remarked in a determined voice wonderful tell me where there's a gas lead station at least a dozen men some of them a little better off than he was explained to him that wheel and car were no longer joined by any physical bond back out he suggested after a moment put her in reverse but the wheel's off he hesitated no harm in trying he said the caterwauling horns had reached a crescendo and i turned away and cut across the lawn toward home i glanced back once a wafer of a moon was shining over gatsby's house making the night fine as before and surviving the laughter and the sound of his still glowing garden a sudden emptiness seemed to flow now from the windows and the great doors endowing with complete isolation the figure of the host who stood on the porch his hand up in a formal gesture of farewell reading over what i have written so far i see i have given the impression that the events of three nights several weeks apart were all that absorbed me on the contrary they were merely casual events in a crowded summer and until much later they absorbed me infinitely less than my personal affairs most of the time i worked in the early morning the sun threw my shadow westward as i hurried down the white chasms of lower new york to the probity trust 
I knew the other clerks and young bond salesmen by their first names, and lunched with them in dark, crowded restaurants on little pig sausages and mashed potatoes and coffee. I even had a short affair with a girl who lived in Jersey City and worked in the accounting department, but her brother began throwing mean looks in my direction, so when she went on her vacation in July, I let it blow quietly away. I took dinner usually at the Yale Club, for some reason it was the gloomiest event of my day, and then I went upstairs to the library and studied investments and securities for a conscientious hour. There were generally a few rioters around, but they never came into the library, so it was a good place to work. After that, if the night was mellow, I strolled down Madison Avenue past the old Murray Hill Hotel and over 33rd Street to the Pennsylvania Station. I began to like New York, the racy, adventurous feel of it at night, and the satisfaction that the constant flicker of men and women and machines gives to the restless eye. I like to walk up Fifth Avenue and pick out romantic women from the crowd and imagine that in a few minutes I was going to enter into their lives, and no one would ever know or disapprove. Sometimes in my mind I followed them to their apartments on the corners of hidden streets, and they turned and smiled back at me before they faded through a door into warm darkness. At the enchanted metropolitan twilight I felt a haunting loneliness sometimes, and felt it in others. Poor young clerks who loitered in front of windows waiting until it was time for a solitary restaurant dinner, young clerks in the dusk, wasting the most poignant moments of night and life. Again at eight o'clock, when the dark lanes of the forties were lined five deep with throbbing taxicabs bound for the theater district, I felt a sinking in my heart. Forms leaned together in the taxis as they waited, and voices sang, and there was laughter from unheard jokes, and lighted cigarettes made unintelligible circles inside. Imagining that I, too, was hurrying towards gaiety and sharing their intimate excitement, I wished them well. For a while I lost sight of Jordan Baker, and then in midsummer I found her again. At first I was flattered to go places with her because she was a golf champion and everyone knew her name. Then it was something more. I wasn't actually in love, but I felt a sort of tender curiosity. The bored, haughty face that she turned to the world concealed something. Most affectations conceal something eventually, even though they don't in the beginning and one day I found what it was. When we were on a house party together up in Warwick, she left a borrowed car out in the rain with the top down, and then lied about it. And suddenly I remembered the story about her that had eluded me that night at Daisy's. At her first big golf tournament there was a row that nearly reached the newspapers, a suggestion that she had moved her ball from a bad lie in the semifinal round. The thing approached the proportions of a scandal, then died away. A caddy retracted his statement, and the only other witness admitted that he might have been mistaken. The incident and the name had remained together in my mind. Jordan Baker instinctively avoided clever, shrewd men, and now I saw that this was because she felt safer on a plane where any divergence from a code would be thought impossible. She was incurably dishonest. She wasn't able to endure being at a disadvantage, and, given this unwillingness, I supposed she had begun dealing in subterfuges when she was very young, in order to keep that cool, insolent smile turned to the world, and yet satisfy the demands of her hard, jaunty body. 
it made no difference to me dishonesty in a woman is a thing you never blame deeply i was casually sorry and then i forgot it was on that same house party that we had a curious conversation about driving a car it started out because she passed so close to some workman that our fender flicked a button on the man's coat you're a rotten driver i protested either you ought to be more careful or you oughtn't to drive at all i am careful no you're not well other people are she said lightly well, what's that got to do with it they'll keep out of my way she insisted it takes two to make an accident suppose you met somebody just as careless as yourself i hope i never will she answered i hate careless people that's why i like you her gray sun-strained eyes stared straight ahead but she had deliberately shifted our relations and for a moment i thought i loved her but i am slow thinking and full of interior rules that act as brakes on my desires and i knew that first i had to get myself definitely out of that tangle back home i've been writing letters once a week and signing them love nick and all i could think of was how when that certain girl played tennis a faint mustache of perspiration appeared on her upper lip nevertheless there was a vague understanding that had to be tactfully broken off before i was free every one suspects himself of at least one of the cardinal virtues and this is mine i am one of the few honest people that i've ever known end of chapter three Chapter Four of *The Great Gatsby* by F. Scott Fitzgerald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. On Sunday morning, while church bells rang in the villages along shore, the world and its mistress returned to Gatsby's house and twinkled hilariously on his lawn. "He's a bootlegger," said the young ladies, moving somewhere between his cocktails and his flowers. One time he killed a man who had found out that he was nephew to von Hindenburg and second cousin to the devil. Reach me a rose, honey, and pour me a last drop into that there crystal glass. Once I wrote down on the empty spaces of a timetable the names of those who came to Gatsby's house that summer. It is an old timetable now, disintegrating at its folds, and headed this schedule in effect July 5th, 1922 but I can still read the gray names, and they will give you a better impression than my generalities of those who accepted Gatsby's hospitality and paid him the subtle tribute of knowing nothing whatever about him. From East Egg, then, came the Chester Beckers and the Leeches, and a man named Bunsen, whom I knew at Yale, and a Dr. Webster Civet, who was drowned last summer up in Maine and the hornbeams and the willie voltaires and a whole clan named blackbuck who always gathered in a corner and flipped up their noses like goats at whoever came near and the ismays and the christies or rather hubert auerbach and mr christie's wife and edgar beaver whose hair they say turned cotton white one winter afternoon for no good reason at all clarence endive was from east egg as i remember he came only once in white knickerbockers and had a fight with a bum named eddie in the garden from farther out on the island came the cheetles and the o r p schraders and the stonewall jackson abrams of georgia and the fish guards and the ripley snells snell was there three days before he went to the penitentiary 
so drunk out on the gravel drive that Mrs. Ulysses Sweat's automobile ran over his right hand. The Dancies came, too, and S.B. Whitebait, who was well over sixty, and Maurice A. Flink, and the Hammerheads, and Beluga the Tobacco Importer, and Beluga's Girls. From West Egg came the Poles, and the Mulradys, and the Cecil Roebuck, and Cecil Schoen, and Gulick the State Senator, and Newton Orchid, who controlled films par excellence, and Eckhaust, and Clyde Cohen, and Don S. Schwartz, the son, and Arthur McCarty, all connected with the movies in one way or another. And the Catlips, and the Bembergs, and G. Earl Muldoon, brother of that Muldoon who afterwards strangled his wife. Da Fontano, the promoter, came there, and Ed Legros, and James B., Rotgut Ferret, and the Dijongs, and Ernest Lilly. They came to gamble, and when Ferret wandered into the garden and meant he was cleaned out, and associated traction would have to fluctuate profitably next day. A man named Clipspringer was there so often that he became known as the Border. I doubt if he had any other home. Of theatrical people, there were Gus Ways and Horace O'Donovan, and Lester Meyer and George Duckweed and Francis Bull. Also from New York were the Cromes and the Bacchusons and the Denikers and Russell Betty and the Corrigans and the Kellers and the Dewars and the Scullies and S.W. Belcher and the Smirkies and the Young Quins, divorced now, and Henry L. Palmetto, who killed himself by jumping in front of a subway train in Times Square. Benny McClenahan arrived always with four girls. They were never quite the same ones in physical person, but they were so identical one with another that it inevitably seemed that they had been there before. I have forgotten their names. Jacqueline, I think, or else Consuela, or Gloria, or Judy, or June, and their last names were either the melodious names of flowers and months, or the sterner ones of the great American capitalists, whose cousins, if pressed, they would confess themselves to be. In addition to all these, I can remember that Faustina O'Brien came there at least once, and the Bedecker girls, and young Brewer, who had his nose shot off in the war, and Mr. Albrooksberger, and Miss Hag, his fiancée, and Ardita Fitzpeters, and Mr. P. Jewett, once head of the American Legion, with a man reputed to be her chauffeur, and a prince of something who we called Duke, and whose name, if I ever knew it, I have forgotten. All these people came to Gatsby's house in the summer. At nine o'clock one morning, late in July, Gatsby's gorgeous car lurched up the rocky drive to my door and gave out a burst of melody from its three-noted horn. It was the first time he had called on me, though I had gone to two of his parties, mounted in his hydroplane and, at his urgent invitation, made frequent use of his beach. "'Good morning, old sport. You're having lunch with me today, and I thought we'd ride up together.' He was balancing himself on the dashboard of his car, with that resourcefulness of movement that is so peculiarly American. That comes, I suppose, with the absence of lifting work in youth, and even more with the formless grace of our nervous sporadic games. This quality was continually breaking through his punctilious manner in the shape of restlessness. He was never quite still. There was always a tapping foot somewhere or the impatient opening and closing of a hand. He saw me looking with admiration at his car. "'It's pretty, isn't it, old sport?' 
he jumped off and gave me a better view have you ever seen it before i'd seen it everybody had seen it it was a rich cream color bright with nickel swollen here and there in its monstrous length with triumphant hat boxes and supper boxes and tool boxes and terraced with a labyrinth of windshields that mirrored a dozen suns sitting down behind many layers of glass in a sort of green leather conservatory we started to town i talked with him perhaps half a dozen times in the past month and found to my disappointment that he had little to say so my first impression that he was a person of some undefined consequence had gradually faded and he became simply the proprietor of an elaborate roadhouse next door and then came that disconcerting ride we hadn't reached west egg village before gatsby began leaving his elegant sentences unfinished and slapping himself indecisively on the knee of his caramel-colored suit look here old sport he broke out surprisingly what's your opinion of me anyhow a little overwhelmed i began the generalized evasions which that question deserves well i'm going to tell you something about my life he interrupted i don't want you to get a wrong idea of me from all these stories you hear so he was aware of the bizarre accusations that flavored conversation in his halls i'll tell you god's truth his right hand suddenly ordered divine retribution to stand by i am the son of some wealthy people in the middle west all dead now i was brought up in america but educated at oxford because all my ancestors have been educated there for many years it is a family tradition he looked at me sideways and i knew why jordan baker had believed he was lying he hurried the phrase educated at oxford or swallowed it or choked on it as though it had bothered him before and with this doubt his whole statement fell to pieces and i wondered if there was something a little sinister about him after all what part of the middle west i inquired casually san francisco i see my family all died and i came into a good deal of money his voice was solemn as if the memory of the sudden extinction of a clan still haunted him for a moment i suspected that he was pulling my leg but a glance at him convinced me otherwise after that i lived like a young rajah in all the capitals of europe paris venice rome collecting jewels chiefly rubies hunting big game painting a little things for myself only and trying to forget something very sad that had happened to me long ago with an effort i managed to restrain my incredulous laughter the very phrases were worn so threadbare that they evoked no image except that of a turbaned character leaking sawdust at every pore as he pursued a tiger through the bois de boulogne then came the war old sport it was a great relief and i tried very hard to die but i seemed to bear the enchanted life i accepted a commission as first lieutenant when it began in the argonne forest i took the remains of my machine-gun battalion so far forward that there was a half-mile gap on either side of us where the infantry couldn't advance we stayed two days and two nights a hundred and thirty men with sixteen lewis guns and when the infantry came up at last they found the insignia of three german divisions among the piles of dead 
I was promoted to be a major, and every Allied government gave me a decoration. Even Montenegro, little Montenegro, down on the Adriatic Sea. Little Montenegro? He lifted up the words and nodded at them, with his smile. The smile comprehended Montenegro's troubled history and sympathized with the brave struggles of the Montenegrin people. It appreciated fully the chain of national circumstances which had elicited this tribute from Montenegro's warm little heart. My incredulity was submerged in fascination now. It was like skimming hastily through a dozen magazines. He reached in his pocket and a piece of metal slung in ribbon fell into my palm. That's the one from Montenegro. To my astonishment, the thing had an authentic look. Ordery di Danilo, ran the circular legend. Montenegro Nicholas Rex. Turn it. Major J. Gadsby, I read, for valor extraordinary. Here's another thing I always carry, a souvenir of Oxford days. It was taken at Trinity Quad. The man on my left is now the Earl of Doncaster. It was a photograph of half a dozen young men in blazers loafing in an archway through which were visible a host of spires. There was Gatsby, looking a little, not much, younger, with a cricket bat in his hand. Then it was all true. I saw the skins of tigers flaming in his palace on the Grand Canal. I saw him opening a chest of rubies to ease, with their crimson-lighted depths, the gnawings of his broken heart. "'I'm going to make a big request of you today,' he said, pocketing his souvenirs with satisfaction. "'So I thought you ought to know something about me. I didn't want you to think I was just some nobody. You see, I usually find myself among strangers because I drift here and there, trying to forget the sad things that happened to me.' He hesitated. "'You'll hear about it this afternoon.' "'At lunch?' "'No, this afternoon.' I happen to find out that you're taking Miss Baker to tea. Do you mean that you're in love with Miss Baker? No, old sport, I'm not. But Miss Baker had kindly consented to speak to you about this matter. I hadn't the faintest idea what this matter was, but I was more annoyed than interested. I hadn't asked Jordan to tea in order to discuss Mr. J. Gadsby. I was sure the request would be something utterly fantastic and for a moment I was sorry I'd ever set foot upon his overpopulated lawn. He wouldn't say another word. His correctness grew on him as we neared the city. We passed Port Roosevelt, where there was a glimpse of red-belted ocean-going ships, and sped along a cobbled slum lined with the dark, undeserted saloons of the faded gilt 1900s. Then the Valley of Ashes opened out on both sides of us, and I had a glimpse of Mrs. Wilson straining at the garage pump with panting vitality as we went by. With fenders spread like wings, we scattered light through half Astoria. Only half, for as we twisted among the pillars of the elevated, I heard the familiar jug-jug-spat of a motorcycle and a frantic policeman rode alongside. "'All right, old sport,' called Gatsby. We slowed down. Taking a white card from his wallet, we waved it before the man's eyes. "'Right you are,' agreed the policeman, tipping his cap. "'Know you next time, Mr. Gatsby. Excuse me!' "'What was that?' I inquired. "'The picture of Oxford?' "'I was able to do the commissioner a favor once, and he sends me a Christmas card every year.' 
over the great bridge with the sunlight through the girders making a constant flicker upon the moving cars with the city rising up across the river in white heaps and sugar lumps all built with a wish out of non-olfactory money the city scene from the queensborough bridge is always the city scene for the first time in its first wild promise of all the mystery and the beauty in the world a dead man passed us in a hearse heaped with blooms followed by two carriages with drawn blinds and by more cheerful carriages for friends the friends looked out at us with the tragic eyes and short upper lips of southeastern europe and i was glad that the sight of gatsby's splendid car was included in their sombre holiday as we crossed blackwell's island a limousine passed us driven by a white chauffeur in which sat three modish negroes two bucks and a girl i laughed aloud as the yokes of their eyeballs rolled toward us in haughty rivalry anything can happen now that we've slid over this bridge i thought anything at all even gatsby could happen without any particular wonder roaring noon in a well-fanned forty-second street cellar i met gatsby for lunch blinking away the brightness of the street outside my eyes picked him out obscurely in the anteroom talking to another man mr carraway this is my friend mr wolfsheim a small flat-nosed jew raised his large head and regarded me with two fine growths of hair which luxuriated in neither nostril after a moment i discovered his tiny eyes in the half-darkness so i took one look at him said mr wolfsheim shaking my hand earnestly and what do you think i did what i inquired politely but evidently he was not addressing me, for he dropped my hand and covered Gatsby with his expressive nose. I handed the money to Katzpah, and I said, All right, Katzpah, don't pay him a penny until he shuts his mouth. He shut it then and there. Gatsby took an arm of each of us and moved forward into the restaurant, whereupon Mr. Wolfsheim swallowed a new sentence he was starting and lapsed into a somnambulatory abstraction eyeballs asked the head waiter this is a nice restaurant here said mr wolfsheim looking at the presbyterian nymphs on the ceiling but i like across the street better yes highballs agreed mr gatsby and then to mr wolfsheim it's too hot over there hot and small yes said mr wolfsheim but full of memories what place is that i asked the old metropole the old metropole brooded mr wolfsheim gloomily filled with faces dead and gone filled with friends gone now forever i can't forget so long as i live the night they shot rosie rosenthal there it was six of us at the table and rosie had eaten drunk a lot all evening when it was almost morning the waiter came up to him with a funny look and says somebody wants to speak to him outside all right says rosie and begins to get up and i pulled him down in his chair let the bastards come here if they want you rosie but don't you so help me move outside this room it was four o'clock in the morning then and if we'd have raised the blinds we'd have seen daylight did he go i asked innocently sure he went mr wolfsheim's nose flashed at me indignantly he turned around in the door and says don't let that waiter take away my coffee 
and then he went out on the sidewalk, and they shot him three times in his fool belly and drove away. Four of them were electrocuted, I said, remembering. Five with Becca, his nostrils turned to me in an interested way. I understand you're looking for a business connection. The juxtaposition of these two remarks was startling. Gatsby answered for me. Oh, no, he exclaimed. This isn't the man. No? Mr. Volsheim seemed disappointed. This is just a friend. I told you we'd talk about that some other time. I beg your pardon, said Mr. Volsheim. I had the wrong man. A succulent hash arrived, and Mr. Wolfsheim, forgetting the more sentimental atmosphere of the old metropole, began to eat with ferocious delicacy. His eyes, meanwhile, roved very slowly all around the room. He completed the arc by turning to inspect the people directly behind. I think that, except for my presence, he would have taken one short glance beneath our own table. "'Look here, old sport,' said Gatsby, leaning toward me. I'm afraid I made you a little angry this morning in the car. There was the smile again, but this time I held out against it. I don't like mysteries, I answered, and I don't understand why you won't come out frankly and tell me what you want. Why has it all got to come through Miss Baker? Oh, it's nothing underhand, he assured me. Miss Baker's a great sportswoman, you know, and she'd never do anything that wasn't all right. Suddenly he looked at his watch, jumped up, and hurried from the room, leaving me with Mr. Wolfsheim at the table. "'He has to telephone,' said Mr. Wolfsheim, following him with his eyes. "'Fine fellow, isn't he? Handsome to look at, and a perfect gentleman.' "'Yes. He's an Oxford man.' "'Oh. He went to Oxford College in England. You know Oxford College?' "'I've heard of it.' It's one of the most famous colleges in the world. Have you known Gatsby for a long time? I inquired. Several years, he answered in a gratified way. I made the pleasure of his acquaintance after the war, but I knew I had discovered a man of fine breeding after I talked with him an hour. I said to myself, there is the kind of man you'd like to take home and introduce to your mother and sister. He paused. I see you're looking at my cuff buttons. I hadn't been looking at them, but I did now. They were composed of oddly familiar pieces of ivory. Finest specimens of human molars, he informed me. Well, I inspected them. That's a very interesting idea. Yeah, he flipped his sleeves up under his coat. Yeah, Gatsby's very careful about the women. He would never so much as look at the friend's wife. When the subject of this instinctive trust returned to the table and sat down, Mr. Wolfsheim drank his coffee with a jerk and got to his feet. I have enjoyed my lunch, he said, and I'm going to run off from you two young men before I outstay my welcome. Don't hurry, Meyer, said Gatsby without enthusiasm. Mr. Wolfsheim raised his hand in a sort of benediction. You're very polite, but I belong to another generation, he announced solemnly. You sit here and discuss your sports and your young ladies and your... He supplied an imaginary noun with another wave of his hand. As for me, I'm fifty years old, and I won't impose myself on you any longer. As he shook hands and turned away, his tragic nose was trembling. 
I wondered if I had said anything to offend him. He becomes very sentimental sometimes, explained Gatsby. This is one of his sentimental days. He's quite a character around New York, a denizen of Broadway. Who is he, anyhow? An actor? No. A dentist? Meyer Wolfsheim? No, he's a gambler. Gatsby hesitated, then added coolly, He's the man who fixed the World Series back in 1919. Fixed the World Series? I repeated. The idea staggered me. I remembered, of course, that the World Series had been fixed in 1919, but if I had thought of it at all, I would have thought of it as a thing that merely happened, the end of some inevitable chain. It never occurred to me that one man could start to play with the fate of fifty million people, with the single-mindedness of a burglar blowing a safe. How did he happen to do that? I asked after a minute. He just saw the opportunity. Why isn't he in jail? They can't get him, old sport. He's a smart man. I insisted on paying the check. As the waiter brought my change, I caught the sight of Tom Buchanan across the crowded room. "'Come along with me for a minute,' I said. "'I've got to say hello to someone.' When he saw us, Tom jumped up and took half a dozen steps in our direction. "'Where have you been?' he demanded eagerly. "'Daisy's furious because you haven't called up.' "'This is Mr. Gatsby, Mr. Buchanan.' They shook hands briefly, and a strained, unfamiliar look of embarrassment came over Gatsby's face. "'How have you been, anyhow?' demanded Tom of me. How do you happen to come up this far to eat? I've been having lunch with Mr. Gatsby. I turned toward Mr. Gatsby, but he was no longer there. One October day in 1917, said Jordan Baker that afternoon, sitting up very straight on a straight chair in the tea garden at the Plaza Hotel, I was walking along from one place to another, half on the sidewalks and half on the lawns. I was happier on the lawns, because I had on shoes from England with rubber knobs on the soles that bit into the soft ground. I had on a new plaid skirt also that blew a little in the wind, and whenever this happened the red, white, and blue banners in front of all the houses stretched out stiff and said, tut, 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 in a disapproving way. The largest of the banners and the largest of the lawns belonged to Daisy Fay's house. She was just eighteen, two years older than me, and by far the most popular of all the young girls in Louisville. She dressed in white and had a little white roadster, and all day long the telephone rang in her house, and excited young officers from Camp Taylor demanded the privilege of monopolizing her that night. Anyways, for an hour. When I came beside her house that morning, her white roadster was beside the curb, and she was sitting in it with a lieutenant I had never seen before. They were so engrossed in each other that she didn't see me until I was five feet away. "'Hello, Jordan,' she called unexpectedly. "'Please come here.' I was flattered that she wanted to speak to me, because of all the older girls I admired her most. She asked me if I was going to Red Cross to make bandages. I was. Well, then, would I tell them that she couldn't come that day?' The officer looked at Daisy while she was speaking, in a way that every young girl wants to be looked at sometime, and because it seemed romantic to me, I have remembered the incident ever since. His name was Jay Gadsby, and I didn't lay eyes on him again for over four years. Even after I met him on Long Island, I didn't realize it was the same man. That was 1917. 
by the next year i had a few bows myself and i began to play in tournaments so i didn't see daisy very often she went with a slightly older crowd when she went with any one at all wild rumors were circulating about her how her mother had found her packing her bag one winter night to go to new york and say good-bye to a soldier who was going overseas she was effectually prevented but she wasn't on speaking terms with her family for several weeks after that she didn't play around with the soldiers any more but only with a few flat-footed short-sighted young men in town who couldn't get into the army at all by the next autumn she was gay again gay as ever she had a debut after the armistice and in february she was presumably engaged to a man from new orleans in june she married tom buchanan of chicago with more pomp and circumstance than louisville ever knew before he came down with a hundred people in four private cars and hired a whole floor of the Mulbach hotel and the day before the wedding he gave her a string of pearls valued at three hundred and fifty thousand dollars i was a bridesmaid i came into her room half an hour before the bridal dinner and found her lying on her bed as lovely as the june night in her flowered dress and as drunk as a monkey she had a bottle of sauterne in one hand and a letter in the other congratulate me she muttered never had a drink before but oh how i do enjoy it what's the matter daisy i was scared i can tell you i never seen a girl like that before here dearies she groped around in a wastebasket she had with her on the bed and pulled out the string of pearls take em downstairs and give em back to whoever they belong to tell em all daisies change her mind say daisies change her mind she began to cry she cried and cried i rushed out and found her mother's maid and we locked the door and got her into a cold bath she wouldn't let go of the letter she took it into the tub with her and squeezed it up into a wet ball and only let me leave it in the soap-dish when she saw that it was coming to pieces like snow but she didn't say another word we gave her spirits of ammonia and put ice on her forehead and hooked her back into her dress and half an hour later when we walked out of the room the pearls were around her neck and the incident was over next day at five o'clock she married tom buchanan without so much as a shiver and started off on a three months trip to the south seas i saw them in santa barbara when they came back and i thought i'd never seen a girl so mad about her husband if he left the room for a minute she'd look around uneasily and say where's tom gone and wear the most abstracted expression until she saw him coming in the door she used to sit on the sand with his head in her lap by the hour rubbing her fingers over his eyes and looking at him with unfathomable delight it was touching to see them together it made you laugh in a hushed fascinated way that was in august a week after i left santa barbara tom ran into a wagon on the ventura road one night and ripped a front wheel off his car the girl who was with him got into the papers too because her arm was broken she was one of the chambermaids in the santa barbara hotel the next april daisy had her little girl and they went to france for a year i saw them one spring in Cannes and later in deauville and then they came back to chicago to settle down daisy was popular in chicago as you know they moved with a fast crowd all of them young and rich and wild but she came out with an absolutely perfect reputation perhaps because she doesn't drink 
it's a great advantage not to drink among hard-drinking people you can hold your tongue and moreover you can time any little irregularity of your own so that everybody else is so blind that they don't see or care perhaps daisy never went in for a more after all and yet there's something in that voice of hers well about six weeks ago she heard the name gatsby for the first time in years it was when i asked you do you remember if you knew gatsby in west egg after you had gone home she came into my room and woke me up and said what gatsby and when i described him i was half asleep she said in the strangest voice that it must be the man she used to know it wasn't until then that i connected this gatsby with the officer in her white car when jordan baker had finished telling all this we had left the plaza for half an hour and were driving in a victoria through central park the sun had gone down behind the tall apartments of the movie stars in the west fifties and the clear voices of children already gathered like crickets on the grass rose through the hot twilight i'm the sheik of araby your love belongs to me at night when you're asleep into your tent i'll creep it was a strange coincidence i said but it wasn't a coincidence at all why not gatsby bought that house so that daisy would be just across the bay then it had not been merely the stars to which he had aspired on that june night he came alive to me delivered suddenly from the womb of his purposeless splendor he wants to know continued jordan if you'll invite daisy to your house some afternoon and then let him come over the modesty of the demand shook me he had waited five years and bought a mansion where he dispensed starlight to casual moths so that he could come over some afternoon to a stranger's garden did i have to know all this before you could ask such a little thing he's afraid he's waited so long he thought you might be offended you see he's a regular tough underneath it all something worried me why didn't he ask you to arrange a meeting he wants her to see his house she explained and your house is right next door oh i think he half expected her to wander into one of his parties some night went on jordan but she never did then he began asking people casually if they knew her and i was one of the first he found it was that night he sent for me at his dance and you should have heard the elaborate way he worked up to it of course i immediately suggested a luncheon in new york and i thought he'd go mad i don't want to do anything out of the way he kept saying i want to see her right next door when i said you were a particular friend of tom's he started to abandon the whole idea he doesn't know very much about tom though he says he's read a chicago paper for years just on the chance of catching a glimpse of daisy's name it was dark now and as we dipped under a little bridge i put my arm around jordan's golden shoulder and drew her toward me and asked her to dinner suddenly i wasn't thinking of daisy and gatsby any more but of this clean hard limited person who dealt in universal skepticism and who leaned back jauntily just within the circle of my arm a phrase began to beat in my ears with a sort of heady excitement there are only the pursued the pursuing the busy and the tired and daisy ought to have something in her life murmured jordan to me does she want to see gatsby she's not to know about it gatsby doesn't want her to know you're just supposed to invite her to tea 
we passed a barrier of dark trees and then the facade of fifty-ninth street a block of delicate pale light beamed down into the park unlike gatsby and tom buchanan i had no girl whose disembodied face floated along the dark cornices of blinding signs and so i drew up the girl beside me tightening my arms her wan scornful mouth smiled and so i drew her up again closer this time to my face End of chapter 4